As I said, it's great to be with you today. Children uh, can be dismissed for worship training, so if you have children for worship training, they can be dismissed now. Um, as we enter into a time where we hear from God's Word and worship together through His Word, please uh, recite along with me. Lord, sanctify us in the truth. Your Word is truth. Amen. Well, today, uh, Cornerstone, uh, Pastor Carter and myself are starting a new series on the book of Romans. So if you're familiar with the book of Romans, if you're not familiar with it, either way, I encourage you to join with us over the next season of our uh, preaching uh, life as a church to dive into the book with zeal and joy. And the reason why I wanted to, to, to go into the book of Romans myself is because what we believe about God is the single most important thing in our lives. Uh, it, everything in our life, whether even we believe in God or not, that itself will have huge ramifications for every practical decision we make in life. For how we see ourselves, for how we see the world, for how we make decisions in life. Everything comes back down to what we believe about God. And yet as Christians, I find so often, even, even myself... Can, I can be lazy about pursuing knowing God. Because in my flesh, I want to be God. So if I want to be God, I don't really want to know more about God because that's going to make you know, changes in my life. And so a lot of times in my own life, I resist spending time in the Word. I resist studying uh, books like Romans because quite frankly, I don't want um, God in the driver's seat. I want myself in the driver's seat. So I always feel led to preach out of what I feel burdened that I need. And so in this season of my life, at least, I feel burdened that I want to dive more deeply into knowing God. I need him. But that being said, if you look at your bulletin, you'll say, well, why aren't we doing Romans if that's what we're doing? If we're starting a series on Romans, why are we in Genesis? Genesis is if you have a physical Bible, it's, you know, I didn't do the count. It's like 57 books prior to Romans-ish, roughly. Why are we in Genesis? Not only in the Bible, are there a whole lot of, is there a whole lot of content before Romans, but in terms of just world history, you know, Abraham, or who we're looking at today, he lived thousands of years before Jesus. There was no Roman Empire. There was no Rome when Abraham lived. Italy was, who knows what it was back then. So why are we looking at Genesis today? Well, God gave me a great example yesterday. Um, I've been trying to do a little bit of gardening this year. Uh, first time ever that anything has actually grown. And yesterday, we actually had our... I see some of you laughing because you know my trials and tribulations with this. Um, yesterday, we ate our first melon that I actually grew from a seed. And I was like, this is epic. And my kid's like, why is this epic? Because they're like, we have all these melons. Who cares? You go to the store, you buy 500 of them. I'm like, you don't understand. I grew this from a seed. Now, if you took that cantaloupe seed and that cantaloupe and you held them together, you would say, these have nothing to do with one another. There's a seed. Here's a melon. There's nothing, nothing in common with these. If you knew nothing about farming, you would have no idea that these are related. But in fact, everything that that melon became grew out of that seed. And when we're looking at Genesis 15 today, we are doing so because when we get to the good stuff in the gospel, in Romans... What I hope you see today is that that didn't come from, from nowhere. That wasn't just Paul inventing it. It wasn't a new theology. And there are people who will teach that about Romans. There are people who will teach 
that in Romans and in the New Testament, God is coming up with a different plan of salvation than what he had in the Old Testament. You will hear that today. They, they will say that plan A was Israel. Plan A was the law. Plan A was works. And Israel messed it up. Israel could not do that, so God had to go, well, we need a plan B. We're going to send Jesus, and instead of doing it by law and doing it by obedience to works, we're going to do it by grace through faith. And so you will hear them preach on Romans, and that's what they will say. But what I hope you see today is that that is categorically false. That just like a seed brings forth the crops later on, the melons, the can, whatever it is, so the way God has designed salvation is that the Old Testament is, and we even see, say, say this in our theology, it is, it is a promise of what God then fulfills when he sends Jesus Christ. So today we are looking at that seed. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 15. We are going to read the whole chapter together. And I'll just say, since we're not looking at Genesis in detail, I'm not going to be able to cover everything in this, this chapter. My goal is that we hit some of the highlights that help us see how, what God is going to teach, or what, see, what Paul is going to teach about God and the gospel in Romans is rooted and anchored in the Old Testament, and is specifically in Genesis and in Abraham's life. So read with me. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your rewards will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, uh, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So, let me pray as we go in. 
Dear Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, this passage here in Genesis 15, where we see one of the early uh, theophanies, where you revealed yourself to Abram in visions and in, and in your word. God, as we study this passage today, and in particular looking at it as the seed which brought forth the gospel that is proclaimed by Paul in Romans, I pray that you'd help us see you. God, we need you, and we need to know you. You are our life. To that end, I pray, Spirit, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing to note is that this whole chapter records what is called a covenant ceremony. Now, in case you never heard the word covenant before, we actually sang it quite a bit and also recited it in our liturgy today, which was a nice touch by Pastor Carter. But a covenant ceremony is what this event is recording in this chapter. And so if you look at it from our vantage point, and indeed if you were like me when you first read this, you're kind of going, what is going on in this passage? What, why is God asking him to cut these animals up? What is, what is going on with, with uh, this fire pot and this, this, this torch? Well, what, if you were an ancient person, when, when Jesus was written, you would know exactly what was going on. What is going on here is called a, is a covenant ceremony. So, and I, I want to, to emphasize this today because you cannot understand Romans if you do not understand what a covenant is. A covenant, uh, one, actually I read one author said, said this way. He said, asking for a definition of covenant is something like asking for a definition of mother. A mother may be defined as the person who brought you into the world. That definition may be correct formally, but who would be satisfied with such a definition? Meaning, what I, I, I give that as a disclaimer because, yes, we, I am going to sort of define what covenant is, but do not mistake that, that kind of cold definition for, for misunderstanding from the biblical perspective the, the huge implications of all that uh, the covenant relationship between us and God brings to us. So, uh, first of all, the English word. Because if you're like me, I never studied this word in high school, in college. It wasn't on an SAT exam. I never used the word covenant. Some of our Latin friends may know. Uh, it, may, it may sound familiar to them. But it actually comes from Latin, and it means to come together. That's where the English word comes from. So um, it, it, I think it means a, a convenir. So even veneer, if you've learned Spanish, veneer, to come. Convenir in Latin means to come together. So the English word that we have, covenant, that's where it comes from. Um, however, of course, the Bible is not written in Latin. The, the, the Old Testament in Genesis is written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for covenant is berit. And we don't know exactly where that word came from, but what a berit is in terms of a concept, in its most essential aspect, is it, it is a solemn oath that binds two people together. A covenant is a solemn oath that binds two people together. Okay, that's what a covenant is. And in the ancient world, at the time when Genesis was written, covenants were used in all kinds of relationships. If you were Abraham out shopping for a donkey, you might sign a covenant with a donkey seller. Oh, no laughter there. Car, like a car salesman, because that was their version of a contract. If you were a farmer and you had a neighbor and you wanted to agree upon you know, make sure you, you understood where that line was between your land and their land, you would agree by covenant, I'm not going to move my fence five feet over when you're not looking. Or I'm not going to steal your sheep when you're not looking. 
In the old, in the ancient world, and especially where, uh, excuse me, where Abraham lived, covenants were not just a religious thing. They were part of the normal way that life happened. A covenant was a solemn vow made between two people. On top of that, covenants were actually used in politics. If you were a king or some kind of local ruler, you would actually enter into a covenant relationship with those you ruled over. And so, uh, and that's actually, in, in the Bible at least, in terms of what's going on here in Genesis, that is the closest uh, approximation of what's happening in Genesis 15. Where God himself is being depicted as a Lord, as a master, as a sovereign, entering into a covenant relationship with someone who is underneath him, who is less than him. We can all agree that God is God and Abraham is Abraham, right? So this is not a covenant between two equal parties. This is, this is not me and you entering into agreement. This is the, so, the sovereign God of the universe entering into an agreement, into a solemn oath with Abraham. Anyone uh, of the original audience, when they read Genesis 15, that's what they would have seen. So there are, some certain, there are certain aspects of a covenant ritual, just like we have ceremonies. I see Michael and Randy here today. Hey guys, welcome back. So they got married here a couple weeks ago. And we know, yes, amen, amen. Um, we know when we think of a wedding, certain things come to mind, right? There are traditions that are a part of a wedding ritual. The bride and the groom and what they wear. I mean, everything, right, is kind of scripted, right? We all know when we go to a wedding what's going to happen in general, okay? And if you go to Asia, you will find different traditions. If you go to probably Africa, different traditions. But here in America, we have our traditions that we associate with a wedding ceremony, well, in the ancient world, when you had a covenant ceremony, there were traditions that you said, when you do a covenant ceremony, this is what you're going to do. And one of those that we see here in Genesis 15 is an animal sacrifice. Why does God tell Abram to go get um, a, a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon? And then why does he tell him to cut those in half? Because when you entered into a covenant agreement with someone, almost always you sacrificed an animal. Now why would you do that? For several reasons. One, animal sacrifice in the ancient world was a way that you create, that you, I'm sorry, not create, that you expressed the solemnity of what you were doing. In our day and age, we sign papers, right? If I, when, I, when my wife and I bought a house, all we did was sign a piece of paper. But we know that there's a lot that goes into that piece of paper, right? So thank you for responding to that. So we understand when we put our signature on something, that is a significant act, right? It's a solemn act. Or if you're ever giving testimony in a court case and you, you, know, you raise your right hand and you say, I, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? That's a solemn act. Well, uh, one of the reasons why you did animal sacrifice was you wanted to convey, this is serious. This is not just me and you chit-chatting and sort of saying, oh, okay, sure, whatever. This is a solemn act. Because taking an animal, back then, especially when you're a farmer, these animals had value. Okay? They were not just something you just threw away. For you to sacrifice a heifer, that is a significant, valuable item that you possess. I mean, Abraham didn't go out and just find one random. He took one of his own and sacrifice it, and the goat and the other animals. So it communicates 
uh, the, the, the solemnity of what is taking place here. Secondly, even in, in kind of tied to that, an animal sacrifice also communicated to, to the people who are partaking of the ceremony, let it happen to me if I don't do what I say. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty serious vow. In other words, when two people enter into a covenant together and they sacrifice an animal, you notice how it says they cut it in two. They cut it in two. And as we'll see here in a minute, uh, the, the torch and the fire are going to walk through that. The idea and the, and the ritual itself was that both parties would actually walk through the, the, the animal, literally walking through its guts. I'm not making that up. That's what they would do. And the reason why, in addition to the solemnity of the vow, was that it communicated, if I don't fulfill my part of the obligation, let it be done to me like it was done to this animal. Now, I don't know about you, that's a pretty serious commitment. Because again, you have to imagine, in the ancient world, there was no police, okay? There's no government to call to say, hey, you know, I'm going to file a complaint. There's no, uh, uh, we, we call it the, the employee uh, rights thing, whatever you call that, you know, to file a complaint with them, labor account, right? There is no one to turn to if someone doesn't fulfill their agreement. All you have in the end is your family or soldiers, whoever has your back. That's all you have. There is no law and order like we think of it. So when you entered into a treaty, you wanted to make sure that both people understood the weight of what they were, the weight of their words, right? The weight of their words, because words can be cheap. We can say things, but the, walking through the pieces of the animal communicated, let it be done to me if I don't fulfill what I've pledged to do, okay? So those are two key critical things. In fact, and I'll just say this, so... So critical was the idea of a sacrifice to the covenant ritual that the verb is actually cut. In Hebrew, if you want to say, I'm going to enter into a covenant relationship with you, you don't say enter into, you don't say make, you say cut. I'm going to cut a covenant with Jeremy. Because that's how close the idea of a sacrifice was in the Hebrew mind to a covenant. I'm going to cut a, I'm going to cut a covenant because... The, the animal sacrifice was, was central to the whole idea. So actually, in your Bibles, whenever you see the, uh, the word covenant, and there's a verb there, it's probably the word to cut. That's how central the idea was. But beyond that, especially in this covenant, what I want you to see is that, as I said earlier, there are different kinds of covenants. The one that's happening here would, in, in technical terms, be the one that's made between a suzerain and a vassal. Now, I just lost like 90% of you right there. But what's crazy is the word suzerain and vassal is actually critical to our theology. I bet you didn't know that. A suzerain is someone who is uh, more powerful. It, it implies a master or a king. Now, I don't know about y'all, but um, if I entered into an agreement with the President of the United States, who has more power, him or me? Who has all the power? Him, right? Now, I know, and we live in a, in a democracy, so technically I have power. But if you live in the ancient world, who has all the power? The king does. And so what I want you to see here is when, whenever you have these kinds of treaties, even outside the, the Bible, what is going on is you have a powerful, mighty, sovereign coming in to a little bitty state or a little bitty tribe. And he says, I'm going to protect you. 
I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to do all these things for you. And in return, all I ask is that you abide by whatever agreement we make. What I want you to see about that, is what we'll see here in a minute, is that, think about this. The God of the universe, who is completely and totally free, he is not bound by anything. He is free. He is, I mean, yeah, kings are free, right? We all know, you read history, you know how the freedom of kings always leads them to do bad things, right? Because no one can stop them. If the king says, hey, I'm going to go to war, and I'm going to take all you suckers with me, sorry, you have to go, right? The king is free. God is the ultimate king. God is completely and totally free. He owes no one anything. He, he, he's obligated to no one. He is all-powerful and he is free. In this chapter here in Genesis 15, we see that God binding himself to someone who can give him nothing. Abraham can give uh, uh, God nothing. Abraham can do nothing for God. Abraham is just a little guy. What can Abraham possibly give to God? What can he possibly do for God? How could he serve God? How could he ever possibly repay God for anything that God is going to do for him? You see, all too often, we do treat God like an equal, don't we? You do this for me, and I'll do this for you. You know? God, you give me this prayer, and I promise I won't do this anymore. Right? God, if you help me get this job, then I promise I'll be a different person. We negotiate with God all the time, don't we? Like he's our equal. Like we're, we're, we're partners uh, negotiating a deal. God is totally and completely free. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And here in this chapter, just what we see God himself doing is binding himself to Abraham and, and to the promises of what we'll see here in a minute. That ought to blow our minds. If you were the original audience and Genesis reading this, you would understand that God is binding himself, his own reputation, his own name, his own everything to Abraham. Not because Abraham can do anything for him. Not because Abraham can repay him for anything. Not because of anything that Abraham in himself can do. But surely because God has chosen to do this. Because God in his mercy and in his grace has chosen to enter into this relationship with Abraham. All right. So what are some of the contents of this covenant? Verse 5 tells us quite clearly uh, the most specific element. God says, uh, uh, God brings Abraham outside and he says, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, I always chuckle when I read that. Because I'm like, in Houston, I can number the stars. There's like four of them. Not, not a big promise, God. And some of them are probably planets, right? If you're in Houston, not, 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 not a great promise. But if you've ever been in Big Bend, or you've ever been out in the sea, or wherever, somewhere, and you've gotten to see some small aspect of the, the sky at night without all the pollution, I mean, you just realize how impoverished we are every night that we don't get to see that amazing display. So imagine God taking Abraham out in a you know, village. I mean, there's nothing around. The stars he would have seen. The Milky Way. I mean, it would have been so thick with stars. 
And God is telling this man, who, by the way, at this point in the story, has not had an heir yet. Abram has not had a single child yet. This man, God is saying, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars. And God is even kind of funny, if you can even count them. The point here is this is an unbelievable promise, right? This is not a promise of God saying, oh yeah, I'll give you a little bit of land, I'll give you a few offspring, I'll give you... It is a promise that defies human rationale. But what does Abram do? Abraham believes the Lord. See, so often, and by the way, as we'll see in Romans, this is going to become a major point for Paul in the book of Romans. Paul is going to over and over get back to Abraham. And what was it that made Abraham righteous before God? How was it that Abraham entered into a relationship with God? And he will go back to this specific verse and say, look, look, it's right here. You can almost hear Paul the Jew telling other Jews, look, it's right here in our own, it's our own Bibles. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But do not mistake or do not, do not minimize the significance of Abram's belief right here. The only reason Abram can believe this promise is because he's relying on the word of the Lord. That's the only reason. You look around him, there's nothing he has to believe this promise. You know? The only reason Abraham can believe this promise from the Lord is because Abraham is staking his faith on the trustworthiness of God. He's staking his faith on the trustworthiness of God. And because of that, it says, God counted it to him as righteousness. We're going to see this word all throughout the book of Romans. In fact, that is the main, that is the main point of Paul writing that letter. That through the gospel, we are made, by, by faith and belief in Jesus Christ, we are made righteous before God. We are made right with God. That is the whole essence of Paul's gospel, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But he wants us to see, and I hope you see right now, as Paul will say over and over, this is not new. This is not new. This is the fulfillment of what we saw all the way back in Genesis. Because what Paul is going to show us is that what God meant was not Abraham's ethnic descent. God was not referring to Abraham's biological children here. He was referring to those who would believe in God after him. Paul will say, and he'll make clear, that this, this offspring of Abraham that God is speaking of is not ethnic Israelites. It is those who believe in God. Those who by faith trust in Him. I want you to understand that that is what is going on here in Genesis 15. That what makes Abraham so pivotal in the life of, of God's people and in the story of salvation is not that he was the first ethnic Israelite. It's that he was the first that we have in Genesis after, after, after Noah, but anyway, but through, in a different covenant, he was the progenitor of this covenant that he entered into by faith. And that what Paul is going to say in, in Romans is that you and I are children of Abraham. Whether you are Ugandan, 
Whether you are Swahili, whether you are Hawaiian, whether you are Russian, whether you are anything, if you believe in God, Paul will tell us you are a child of Abraham. Jesus, in the, in the Gospel of John, he rebukes the Jews. He says, look, God can make Israelites from stones. You don't, you, that, that, that means nothing. It, being ethnically Israelite means nothing. Believing in the Lord. That is the, the foundation of entrance into this covenant. Now, um, the last thing I want to highlight here is this very last part. Verse 17, um, you know, it gets dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. If you're like me, when I first read this, that's a little bit confusing. What is going on here in this vision? So what's happened is God, God has given this promise to Abraham. I will bless you. I'll make your, your, your descendants as numerous as the stars. Then um, Abraham, God puts Abraham to sleep. Oh, sorry, Abraham uh, cuts the animals. He puts them out. Uh, he's chasing the, the birds away. Uh, but Abraham has this vision. It gets all dark. He has a vision of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passing between the pieces. Remember, I told you that as part of the covenant ritual, the parties of the covenant would walk literally through the parts of the animal sacrifice. But what you should catch here, and if you've ever said this passage before, you probably already know this, is that both parties are not walking through the pieces. Only one party is. The, the symbol of the smoking fire pot and a flaming torch are a symbolic representation of the glory of God. Think about, Genesis was written during the time of the Exodus, or after the Exodus uh, story. Now we know from the book of Exodus, how did God lead his people out of Israel? How did God's, how was God's glory manifested on Mount Sinai? Through a fiery cloud. That's, if you go read Exodus, it was a fiery cloud that, that was where God's presence was dwelling. So, um, Every commentator pretty much agrees that this definitely represents God. You know, exactly why the, fire, the, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch specifically. You know, the, one of the possibilities that I think is probably accurate is that this communicated the glory of God to, as an Israel would have understood it, being the, 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 the smoky cloud, the fiery cloud of flame. But what's undoubtable here is that God's glory... God himself is the one walking through the pieces. What that communicates, if you're Abraham, and if you're an Israelite reading this, is that God is binding himself to fulfilling this promise. God is saying, in a metaphorical way, it's metaphorical for him because he's a sinner. I'm sorry, he's, he's not a sinner. So his word is, don't get me in trouble. So his word is unquestionable, right? We need to, you know, if we were doing the covenant ritual, we might have to walk through it well because we're sinners and we lie and we're deceitful. So we need to make sure we make the solemn oath. God never needs to do that. His word stands on its own. But nonetheless, in the customs that would have been understood to these people, God wants to make it clear that he is binding himself to fulfilling this promise by walking through those pieces in such a way that he's saying, let it be done to me if I do not fulfill this promise. Now, what is truly radical, and if I were 
pre- I'm, I'm going to have to do this anyways, because if I were preaching on this, because what's truly mind-blowing is that we know who broke the covenant. We know, don't we? Adam and Eve in the garden broke the covenant. All throughout the story of Israel, over and over and over, it is the people who break the covenant, not God. Yet, on the cross, who is the one taking upon himself the cost of breaking the covenant? It is God himself. Meaning, even in God's mercy and in his grace, God takes upon himself the cost for us breaking the covenant. It's it's such a radical display of love that there are no words for it, and we will spend all of eternity glorifying God for it. But I want you to see here, long before Jesus, long before Rome ever even existed, long before the first century, God is binding himself to a promise to this covenant people, meaning the people who are believing in him and following him, God is binding himself to them. So when we get to Romans next week, and we begin to see God, or excuse me, Paul talking about all that God has done through Jesus Christ, you need to see it through the eyes of Paul, a Jew who's inherited these promises for generation after generation. When are they going to be fulfilled? God told Abraham, your descendants be as numerous as the stars. The Jews in the first century are looking around going, what, God? We're, we're nothing here. We're nothing. We're a nobody. People laugh at us. People mock us. We're, God, we're all the fulfillment of all these promises that you have obligated yourself to do. There is a deep and profound sense of anxiety and burden among the Israelites when Jesus arrives. God, when are you going to fulfill these promises? And then when Paul says, I have good news, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done in dying from the cross and in raising from the dead and in bringing us to himself and in justifying us through, he is saying it with the exuberation that you and I would if we had been in spiritual slavery for thousands of years waiting for the Messiah. All that Paul is going to announce in the book of Romans is a fulfillment of what God started with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. So, and we will see that over and over and over again in the book of Romans. Come to close with a few applications here. We talk, and we even, uh, uh, in our uh, confession with the Heidelberg Catechism, we even recited this. Assurance of salvation. I hope today you're a believer in Jesus and that you know you have absolute assurance of salvation. But do you know why you do? Because God himself has bound himself to the covenant, that, and he himself is saying, I will not rest until it is complete. And then when you believe in God, and you are united to his son, as we said here uh, in, in the confession, when you're united to his son, God, all of the sovereign power of God is now at work to bring you to salvation. I should get an amen on that. All the sovereign power of God is now at work to bring you to salvation. God's very name is staked on you being saved. God's very name is staked on your going into glory, on your being with Jesus Christ. That, I don't know about you, but if my name was staked on it, I'd be in a lot of trouble. If it was up to Jonathan Shumani to be saved, I'm in a lot of trouble. 
It's up to God. God, and this is Romans 8, we'll see this. God himself has staked his name on your salvation. So assurance of salvation is not just something we say because it sounds good in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, a Hallmark card. It's because of what we see right here in Genesis 15. God himself staking his name on us. He didn't have to do that. And he did it. And the reason God will never walk away from you is because God does not walk away from his covenant promises. When God says, let it be done to me as this animal, if I don't fulfill this vow, God means it. So he's not going to walk away from you, not because of you, but because of his own reputation, his own honor, his own name. So that ought to give you lots of reasons to rejoice today. Secondly, who is Jesus today? It's kind of a good question, isn't it? We're going to see next week in the very beginning of Romans chapter 1 who Jesus is today. He is your covenant Lord. That word Christ that you hear all the time, it's not just Jesus' last name. It's a reference to the fact that he is our covenant Lord, our head. Now I know that's, I'm just kind of throwing that in there, but what we will see is when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, that has huge implications for us. Because we are now, He is now our head. He is now our representative. He is now our advocate. He is now the one through whom all of the blessings that God promises to His covenant people come to us. And that's why we, as Paul said in Romans 8, that's why nothing can ever separate us from God. Because Jesus himself is now our covenant head. And if you don't understand the significance of that, in the Old Testament, the king was designed to be the covenant head of God's people. Meaning, if you look, if you, you know, David, right? And all the other kings of Israel. It wasn't just a political position. It was more than anything else, a spiritual position. They were to lead God's people toward godliness, towards faithfulness to the covenant. And if you know anything about any of those kings, you're like, oh man, Israel's in trouble. They are in trouble. The reason why all through the Old Testament you see such comments on the kings and all that they do wrong is because the whole point is, if they can't get it right, the people have no choice. The people are locked into the system where their own kingly representative is woefully sinful. We need a better king. When Jesus rose from the dead, he took upon himself the kingship, the lordship of God's covenant people. And we will see that that, as Paul was explaining in Romans, that gives us every reason to rejoice today as his people. And then lastly, what I want you to see is this. Do not ever think, do not, because this has massive practical applications. Do not ever think that God's original plan of salvation was works-based, obedience-based to the law, and then they failed that, and then now there's a plan B. In other words, you need to know how to read your Bible in a way that's going to lead to your own growth and life and faith. What Genesis 15 makes clear, what all the Old Testament makes clear, is that God has always welcomed people who believe in Him. The, the only requirement God gave to anyone after Adam 
was to believe in me. And so when, we look, when you read your Old Testament and you read all that is going on there, there, of course there's a lot there to talk about, but don't ever make the mistake of thinking that God um, ever wanted anyone after Adam to enter into a relationship with him by works because they never could do it. It would be impossible. And if God did never wanted them to do it, he doesn't want you to do it today. Because a lot of times when we read the Old Testament, we begin to wonder, well, well geez, you know, God gets angry with his people, right? There's, some, there's a lot of episodes in there where God's getting really angry and frustrated with the Israelites. We go, well, geez, you know, are, can I lose my salvation? Is God going to kick me out? What you need to know is that God has always saved people just like Abraham. Those who believe in him and walk in faith. That's what God has always required. Let me, let me, let me pray for us. Dear Father, you, you are... You're so brilliant and wise. And your word testifies over and over and over again to your glory, to your beauty, to your mercy, to your grace, to your honor. You know, we live in a world today that is so banal, so vulgar. And even our own hearts in, the, in our sinful flesh we are so vulgar and just so devoid of the holiness that you have, uh, that you are, and that you have created for us to enjoy. When you died on the cross for us, Jesus, and when you rose from the dead, you did so to fulfill your commitment to save your people. And I pray today, God, as we honor you and worship you here in the 21st century, that we would know that just as you were the same God who entered into a covenant with Abraham, who then fulfilled that through Jesus, that you are going to fulfill all of your promises and that your people will be with you in the new heavens and new earth and that nothing can shake that. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.